came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome back, everyone. We're here for another episode of Disasters Deconstructed. Welcome back. We are going to be bringing you part two of our mini-series on power, prestige, and forgotten values, a disaster studies manifesto, um, which we, we previously talked about in season one, episode 18. It's a significant document in our field of research, and we're back to discuss more about it today. We, last week, we discussed two questions that we asked to our listeners and signatories of the manifesto and, um, and others who are interested in um, contributing their reflections on the manifesto. And we're back to discuss um, another question that we asked and have an overall recap um, of the themes that came out of the discussion. And so here again today, I'm joined by Ksenia and JC Gaillard. Hi, guys. Hello, hello, you two. Good to be back here. I thought you're going to be uh, revenging and sort of not bringing me <laughs> into the episode <laughs> like I did last week. <laughs> but no, here I am. We, we have a lot more content to, to get through um, that was contributed by our listeners. So maybe we'll go ahead and listen to the responses to the third question that we asked. What are your relationships with research partners from within or outside your study areas? We refer to the ones being researched as partners, for we believe that our research is a collaboration and can only be conceived through a collective effort. With this, we work with the partners in the development of the research methodologies and throughout the process of the implementation. We share the research methods in the proposal and inquire if they want to do it or if they have another way of implementing the methodologies. It is critical for the partners to be involved and not just presented with what has to be done. You must listen to them on how they want the research to be implemented. In this way, we can meet halfway, reach an agreement in the negotiation, and make the research more equitable to both parties. As we design the research methodologies with the partners, we must always practice cultural sensitivity and inclusivity especially if we work with a wider audience that includes indigenous peoples and persons with disabilities. Like, are we going to implement the methodologies using the local language or a dialect of a particular ethno-linguistic group? Do we need to perform a ritual before starting the interviews? What are the taboos and norms to be taken into account? How do we make a person with hearing or visual impairment join the research process. We must design and implement researches having these questions in mind so that we would be more sensitive and aware of the partner's needs. 
it is also imperative for the partners to know what the research is for and understand and appreciate what the research means for them, especially to their people. In this way, the partners can establish a sense of ownership and commit to actions even after the research project completion. Our relationships vary according to the specific projects and circumstances. Sometimes we lead, sometimes we are led, and sometimes both simultaneously. Sometimes our study area is where we live and work. Sometimes it is far away, but those we research and collaborate with in other places typically have so much to offer for improving our own homes, so it really becomes an exchange. At times, we are asked for advice and direction which we do not think we can give. At times, we are given recommendations which we do not agree are suitable. For me, the key is to be aware of and open about power relations in order to use them constructively to help each other as much as possible. As an anthropologist surrounded by co-workers of natural science, I feel most of them are open to social studies. The problem is they speak data and results in their own terms. Well, we all do that. Can we convince them that we can make a serious social analysis without a graphic? The pressure to fit in the scientific criteria may stop non-standard ideas and to reduce the diversity of different approaches. If you want to do research in a rural village in a humanitarian setting, you need to get the permission from the local officials or community leaders before you can go ahead. Now, it's very likely that there's no detailed map of that village or a comprehensive written record of who lives where. So these local officials, they will help you. If you want to organize a focus group, they will recommend people to include. They'll make it happen. If you want to conduct a survey, they will help you by pointing out where the different communities that make up the village live. You know, some villages are very spread out. Now, the key thing here is that they can also exclude people from focus group discussions and not tell you about certain groups of villages that live rather far away from the, from the village center. They ultimately have the power to decide who you will talk to in the village and who you will not talk to, what ideas you will hear, therefore, and what ideas you won't hear. Now, obviously, this power is significantly diminished if a researcher spends a full year in that hypothetical village. But most disaster researchers don't spend more than one or two days in a rural village maximum and a survey is often done just in a few hours so what that means is that in most cases research findings are more likely to align with the interests and needs of those local gatekeepers of, of those local power holders than with some group of marginalized villages the researcher knew nothing about and never met from the individual's perspective, I would always emphasize that some kind of ownership in the part of the researchers here in Nepal is always important. You know, if they feel they are part of the partnership and that always helps and then in a way um, encourages them, uh, inspire them to be uh, quite productive in the research process as well. That has been my experience. So you can, you can incentivize these scholars. And then when we do that, it also helps the institution like us because you know as i said earlier 
uh, we are in a, in a sort of in between these individual researchers and at times the scholars and institutions from abroad and we have to as I said earlier manage expectation at the same time we need to always work towards the um, somehow um, fulfilling the objectives of the research as well if we are just considered as uh, one of the cultural brokers it puts us in a difficult situation in many respects a lot of projects that are doing research about disaster as well as other um, current issues work with in-country research partners, um, which often means university departments or uh, independent research institutes or think tanks. And I think it's really important to recognize that um, our research partners are research partners and don't necessarily represent the views of all uh, of their fellow country people, um, nor are, do they necessarily have privileged access to the views of specific communities within their country. And it's as much a research process for them as it is for researchers coming from outside of the country. The thing is that it mustn't become the responsibility of those who are most marginalized or most precarious within a research partnership to say, hey, wait, I'm not feeling good about this. I feel like my contributions are being taken for granted or uh, I don't think we're adequately engaging with um, community priorities or something like that. So um, because if you just leave it to like sort of troubleshooting when a problem arises, which I think is kind of what we did in our previous project at first until that started to happen. And then it became clear, well, no, that doesn't work because then it puts the burden on the people who are already um, you know, most vulnerable um, within the project. So actually, this should be something that's done by project leadership, where you set up the principles and then you say, okay, maybe once a month or at certain key phases uh, in the project, we're going to just actually earmark the time to have a conversation like this and create a safe space for people um, to say how they're feeling about how well we're doing on achieving our goals. Rituals amongst my indigenous community and the spaces of solidarity and dialogue by which these are performed embody indigenous ethics of relationship and accountability that are essential in research amongst indigenous peoples. Also, these rituals embody a researcher's commitment to disaster research as a form of solidarity with indigenous peoples in their struggles. These indigenous processes are what makes research meaningful to my indigenous community. Unfortunately, it can be difficult to locate these meanings in Western epistemologies. I think we have to take a step further and engage in transdisciplinary research and practice, which dissolves the boundaries between conventional disciplines and organizes teaching and learning around the construction of meaning in the context of real world problems or themes. And I feel that is the only way we'll make disaster research and practice of any meaning. Otherwise, we'll be very happy doing research for as a self-fulfillment goal. People working in local level civil society organisations are really important because they themselves are shoulder to shoulder with the communities they work with and have rich understanding of them and the ability to build bridges between them and other actors such as researchers. Um, so I see them as key players really but if you set researchers 
and practitioners side by side, there is then a problem. Academic researchers, I think, bring fantastic skills and insights. At, at heart, I think a researcher is someone who's able to step outside a situation and when you're in a situation it becomes a set of taken for granted. You can't actually see what's going on and how things could be different. You're kind of embedded in it, you know, and that's the interesting challenge of being a participant observer. Practitioners at all sorts of levels don't naturally make space to question, reflect or think critically. They often don't have those skills very well developed. They just get on with things according to formats and templates and methods that they're used to or they've been trained in. And even people operating, you know, within INGOs, for example, but as practitioners, can be quite aggressive towards researchers and say, why are you slowing this thing down? We just want to do it. We don't want to ask questions. We don't want to question it. What we've heard just now are different reflections on the relationship between researchers and also on the relationship between researchers and non-researchers, so both practitioners and communities. And I think the key message for me was that we need much more respect and we need humility as Western researchers for those, and you know, let's call them insiders, right? And we've discussed the problematic of, of this terminology, but for now, let's call them insiders. And not just inside the school of researchers, but also other stakeholders. But also we need to understand much better uh, the needs of the local researchers and also the power dynamics between them. I think JC reflected, uh, you reflected in the last episode in that just by being an insider, so just by kind of living in, in that country that we are researching, it doesn't mean that all the insiders are equal, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, as uh, Elan said, I think in his clip, it's all about power relations. And um, as, as you said, it's about, I mean, it all starts with who designed the research, who defines the, the, the need for research in the first place, and then who designs the research. And most of our clips, uh, re I mean, reveal that these power relations um, start there, but then eventually uh, carry on through the whole research process, through collecting data, through um, analyzing the data, through whatever um, lens uh, concepts we use, and eventually uh, through to publishing the results or the findings of the research and, and who leads that, that process. But it all starts with who defines the research question and who defines um, the, the, the contours of the research. Mm. I think Rohit reflected really well on that and that when he said that basically when we as Western researchers define the questions, research just becomes um, a tool for self-fulfillment rather than anything hmm. that can be useful for anyone else, right? Absolutely. But you mentioned in the previous episode, Xenia, that funding agencies and donors play a big role there because in the end, uh, in, in, in the current structure of the research environment, wherever we are in the world, I guess, we, we most often need money to do research. And we, I mean, our universities expect us to do research. 
So we need to bring in the money in the coffers of our institutions to do research, and then we need to publish in the end to get tenured, to get uh, promoted. So there's a whole upward accountability mechanism towards the donors and eventually the universities. Uh, and they are those that drive what's appealing and where the resources to conduct research are. I know for me, sometimes being in the field in a country where I don't know the language and I've designed the research question, right? No, with my limited knowledge of the context as an outsider. But then when you go into that context and you have this power dynamic, which is, which is very unequal, you're often thrust into this, you're, you, you, there's this expectation that you want to be kind of center of attention. You want everybody to say yes to you and say that you're correct. And so it's a very um, difficult situation for the outsider sometime as well to try to fight against that because there's like an expectation that you that the extractive research process is just the game that we're playing. And <laughs> so it's like everybody almost um, is willing to to play along and be be used um, or, or that, yeah, it's, I don't know if I'm making sense. It just, it's an uncomfortable thing for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Because this is, this is what Gramsci and, and others would call the common sense, right? This is, mm. this yeah. is what's accepted as what the research is and, and what it, 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 the, the way it has to go. And, and if you reflect back on what we said, uh, in, in the previous episode, this is because we've been convinced that this is good for us. And this is <laughs> not only about the research. This is the, the whole, the whole kind of worldview that this is, this is how it should be and how it should go. And it's, mm. it's not something we're going to, uh, fix, uh, with, uh, a single one off initiative like the manifesto. I mean, it's going to be a long, process of uh i mean raising consciousness that it's that it's not the only way that we could progressively change things and there's um i mean there's a lot of responsibility on us as i would say western researchers those who sit in universities that have resources that have leverage to secure funding from uh, donors that we can uh, open up some space for uh, for other ways of doing doing research mm. and I think it's 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 obviously easier for um, for people who are advancing their career because it's easier for us for example when we are, PI or when we decide to go for a particular funding to say, okay, I'm the PI because it has to be someone from this university leading that bid, but I'm not going to decide what's going to be in the proposal. Yeah. Uh, my name is going to be token, but I'm going to leave uh, the leadership to my uh, local partners. Uh, I'm going to get some, some money maybe for my time, some FTEs or whatever, but I commit to turn this money over in a way or in another. And there are ways to do that. Um, mm -hmm. we can, I'm, I'm going to turn that money over because I've got some other sources of funding or because I don't really need to, um, 
I mean, I, I have other f- sources of funding for, for something else that I can use, uh, for my time or for my own students. So I'm gonna, I'm committing to, uh, transfer that money to my local partners in a way or in another. Mm. So it's, I mean, but for early career researchers, it's very, very difficult to do that, obviously. Mm. And same for authoring publication. I mean, personally, in my position, I don't really care being first author or not, but I know for many young researchers, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal to be first author in a paper in a mm, mm. good journal because it's going to pro- maybe provide you with tenure or, or, mm. or, or a job in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I can't agree more with you in that we have to work within these institutional constraints. And one of the interesting points that I'd like you to reflect a little bit more is the point that Fernando made. So it's not just the issue of power relationship. This is not just about kind of insiders and outsiders. There is also a massive problem um, for interdisciplinary research in that, first of all, the way we do research is kind of dictated by natural sciences, right, criteria. And so very often when we get into the room, say, I don't know, social scientists, humanities, and hardcore engineering, we don't actually understand each other, right? We, we can't, like, we, we can't, we just can't talk to each other. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is another side of the, of the picture, which is similarly inherited from uh, the Enlightenment and um, a, 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 a positivist, uh, empiricist tradition of research, which is very, very strong in, in disaster studies. I fully agree. And that has extended to, to social sciences as well in their diversity. Now, for example, I think, they, 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 as I said, there are opportunities and, and I'm on two projects, for example, at the moment, one which is driven out of the UK and one which is a New Zealand based for which we have in both cases, or we are actually drafting at the moment, some sort of code of conduct or um, good practice bullet points where uh, all researchers would have to to meet somehow and agree upon uh, for the whole duration of the project. And 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 these bullet points um, refer to power relations and who's going to um, lead publications and those kind of things. So this is, and in the one in New Zealand, it's going to be embedded within uh, Te Ao Maori or Maori worldview. So, um, I mean, there are ways forward. I, I, I'm an optimistic, uh, but I think there are ways forward. Um, if we... Uh, senior researchers, uh, I'm not that old, but yeah. uh, <laughs> take, uh, take that kind of, um, commitment and, and, and I, I think, I think, I think, I think we can do it, but it's going to be a long process. Maybe we can just have a discussion about some of the main themes that emerge from this exercise. Um, asking people to reflect on the manifesto and, not only reflect on some of the themes, but maybe we can chart a path forward. And I know JC, you just tried to give us like some hope in, in how we can make change. (laughs) And that would be a, that would be a great way to finish this second episode is on the, on the manifesto is by, you know, encouraging people on how they can contribute to, to making serious change. But, you know, before we do the optimistic, uh, discussion. Let me just kind of take us back uh, to the yeah. dark side uh, of manifesto. So you know, JC, what I what I found interesting, and we kind of um, didn't get a chance to talk about it, is the 
the challenge that Terry posed for us. Um, and in his clip, which we will we will play the segment now, if you remember, he pointed out that the manifesto is largely signed, but signed by academics. Now look at the signatories at the end of that manifesto. I think nearly all of those people, if not all of them, are housed within a university. So my challenge to the manifesto itself is shouldn't it be crafted by a collaboration of researchers and practitioners? So how do we move this forward if we can't step outside of the academia? Yes, so, so this is absolutely correct. And I'm with Thierry on this, um, but it was purposeful for the manifesto to be uh, largely co-signed or co-authored in the first place by researchers, and especially researchers who are kind of mid-career researchers. But we are aware of this, and we were aware of the importance of connecting with practitioners right from the start. So we had our first um, meeting of signatories of the manifesto during the global platform in Geneva in May last year. And at the same time, I had some discussions with groups of practitioners around how to um, pull their initiatives, plural, together with ours and how we could um, further connect. And they are ongoing discussions still. And the fact that you're going to have uh, on your show people like me here, Bat, like Zendelika Willison, who have been some of the pioneers of what we usually call community-based disaster risk reduction is, is symptomatic of this increasing dialogue between practitioners and academics and um, that we are trying to find some ways to collaborate at all stages of our research initiatives. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, thanks for, for mentioning that some of our upcoming guests on Disasters Deconstructed, we have Zaneda and Mahir um, coming up actually immediately after the, these, this mini-series on the manifesto um, in our next couple of episodes, so we look forward to that. Um, and maybe if we, if we think back to some of the main themes of, that we've listened to in these two weeks, um, one of the big things that sticks out to me is, uh, and it kind of connects to a lot of what we, a lot of different episodes that we've done in the past, which have looked at the role of the um, quote unquote community, you know, the, who, the, the people that are the subject of our studies. Um, and, so, and different guests that we've had on have had different approaches to participation and different methodologies that they use um, that also help to maybe center the interests of those who are most um, oppressed by systems and structures of injustice. Um, at, the, at the core of like the, the reason for the research, you know, and um, actually some, I mean, a lot of researchers actually try to bring the people who are, 
are at the center of the reason for the research into the creative process of doing the research. So, yeah, I wonder what you guys think of of that and how we can maybe do it better. Mm, trying to answer this question and build upon the the previous uh, one as well, I I feel as someone who started to research disasters in the in the mid mid late nineteen nineties mid nineteen nineties a huge responsibility. Um, and this is, this is one of the reasons why the manifesto is authored by mostly people who, uh, who are from the same generation of researchers, because I feel like my generation, especially again, those who started in the 1990s have a huge responsibility because we messed things up in the first place. We are those, and me very much included, those people who didn't stick to what we were encouraged to do a decade or a decade and a half before in the 70s, 80s, where we were encouraged not to use vulnerability as, for example, the, the silver bullet that's going to solve the world, but as, mm. as, as, as a prompt. But we, we messed that up. We messed that up completely. And I feel like we, we, we are largely those responsible for the situation now. And this is why I think now, because we are, um, uh, or late or later in our career, this is why we need to somehow take the lead in trying to fix things and try to open up these opportunities as much as, as we can. It's not, it, it shouldn't fall on the young generation of researchers who are struggling in, in the academic environment at the moment to, to make a living, to secure a position, to secure a tenure. So it should be our responsibility. And, and, um, I think this is, um, this is why as well the manifesto doesn't, I mean, the signature doesn't include um, there's pioneer researchers who inspired us in the first place because this is not their fault. This is our fault, mm. I think. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I, 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 I feel a big responsibility there and I think we can do something about it. Mm. Well, I think as well, it's about, um, like I, I do see a lot of, the new generation of researchers and and like talking to grad students i think you know this as well jc um a lot of grad students are exploring methodologies that are much more um emancipatory and put mm. the put those who are actually dealing with everyday risk at the center of the creative process so i'm just um i mean on one hand, I, I totally agree with you that it's not it's not the, the the young researchers' responsibility to fix the problems that have been um, left by the generation before. But at the same time, they have a lot to to contribute, and they're kind of eager to do something better as well, right? I I fully agree with that as well. Um, and I think one of the the triggers for the manifesto was that. I heard so much positive feedback on the uh, inside out uh, argument back in early 2019 from young researchers who were 
um, ready to embrace the so-called decolonizing agenda. And um, yeah. a few people were part of this winter school in Copenhagen in December last year, mm -hmm. where we had uh, a whole bunch of PhD students super excited and bringing some very, very deep thinking mm -hmm. stemming from philosophy, from different disciplines and bringing some different views. Uh, it was so uh, refreshing and so energizing to listen to this. Mm -hmm. And I... I, I it's true that there's a, 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 a huge momentum amongst young researchers to uh, change things, but they need to be provided with the opportunity to do this uh, and to have the space to do this. So, for example, DPM is going to publish uh, a special issue, um, a sort of inside-out, quote mark, special issue mm. um, in parallel of the, the, uh, the sort of special, special issue to launch the new editorial policy for the journal, which is be, which is going to be aligned with the manifesto, but we're going to have a young researcher special, special issue for exactly providing them with this space so that they can have uh, papers not necessarily formatted with or after Western standards that are Anglo-American standards of publishing. Uh, they will be able to use different concepts. We're going to have, we're going to find re uh, sympathetic reviewers um, and we're going to have mentors uh, supervising them or taking them through the process as well so that they can build the confidence to do this. Um, and, and talking to them now, they feel like they have, they need that kind of, or they, they want, they are expecting that kind of uh, support from us to providing them uh, with the confidence and the, and, and the opportunity to do this. When young researchers submit something that is uh, maybe framed differently than is expected by the uh, reviewers that might be reading the paper, you know, that so often, I, I think we all know you, sometimes you get comments that say you should have, why didn't you reference this? Or you must be, you, you don't know anything about this because you didn't reference this person or this paper. Um, and I think like early in your career, sometimes you're, you just uh, do whatever you have to do to get it published, right? Or you just do whatever you have to do to get the reviewer to, to stop criticizing. And I think part of it is just as, as these kind of views of what is actually valuable to cite change, you know, and the, the perception maybe of the perception of value, maybe we won't always demand that young researchers cite all these these papers that are uh, written under the methodologies under the research conditions that have caused the problems in the first place maybe maybe we say well there's there's other papers which are representing um what we actually aspire to create and even if they're not they don't have 500 citations maybe they're that that's the paper that you should be referencing right yeah, I agree. Yes, uh, but they, and and there are, there are ways. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule as well. I'm thinking of this uh, paper recently published uh, in Disasters called Photoquento uh, by this young researcher oh, from yes. the Philippines, whom I whom I don't know at all, but she's named Kaira Alburokaniete, and um, I mean she's she's challenged the norm somehow by publishing something which is not mm. um, based on a sort of widely accepted 
methodology or something which goes a bit beyond the, um, the usual norms. And, and mm. she got through, right? She, she published mm. the paper. So p- possibly she, she, she got reviewed by sympathetic reviewers. I was not one of them. Um, but I mean, I, so you, you, there are exceptions to the rule, right? And this is yeah. why I would still be somehow optimistic that there are, there are people who believe in, 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 in what we're advocating for. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that you and I found, Ksenia, when we were investigating the expression natural disaster in literature was um, just the, the amount of times that that expression is used just um, because it's a buzzword and it's like a snowball effect, you know? So... Yeah. The more people that use the expression, the more people cite the papers that use the expression, and the more popular the paper becomes, the more it gets cited, right? So it's uh and then it just it spreads it spreads the the language all around. <laughs> now I mean I've reviewed papers that refer to the manifesto, I mean positively or challenging it. Um, mm. so I think that's a good thing. So thank you all again for joining us for this second in our mini-series about the manifesto. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed it. If if there's anything that you want to discuss or ask any of us, I'm sure um, we are all happy to continue the discussion on Twitter or by email. Um, We're all pretty easy to find on there. And just want to thank you, JC, for being with us Um, again. It's been amazing to reconnect here and discuss the manifesto in more detail. Uh, thank you so much to uh, both of you for having me again. I mean, it's been a pleasure, and 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 thank you very much for um, your continuing advocacy and for pushing for the manifesto and and the ideas that it carries. I think you've highlighted so many important points, JC, and it's really quite amazing, you know, to bring this all together. And I'm gra- glad so many people have shared their opinions with us. And of course, there are still so many questions, right, that we need to explore and that we need to reflect upon. And I really love what you're saying about kind of self-reflection and our own role in the way the disaster studies are and, you know, how, how we can challenge that. So I think it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? I think it's good to be uncomfortable. I think it's good to kind of to think about this. Discomfort is probably a really a good place to be in a sense uh, for all of us, whoever we are in terms of building relationships with each other and, and that's part of the process. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.
Thank you very much, everyone. You've been listening to the Disaster Deconstructed podcast. It's GC Gaillard without a D at the end. It's not Gaillard. Otherwise, it's reinforcing the hegemony of the English language over French and other non-Anglo-American ways of saying. So it's Gaillard, not Gaillard, Gaillard or whatever. Uh, thank you so very much, everyone. <laughs>